You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. With five episodes and a wake-up left, I'm turning my attention back to our regular series and I'll be looking at issue number 82 of The Nom. I'll also be taking a look at historical context for October, November, and December of 1973. The song for this episode is from that period of 1973. It is Top of the World by the Carpenters, which was the number one song in the country on both December 1st and December 8th of that year. The song was the second of the group's three straight number one singles and actually wasn't originally intended to be a single release. Richard Carpenter had co-written the song with John Bettis, and the Carpenters had recorded it for the 1972 album A Song for You, when Lynn Anderson covered it and had her version hit number two on the country charts in 1973, the Carpenter's version was released and did wind up going number one. Our comic came out on May 25th, 1993, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover date was for July of 93, and it had a price tag of $1.75. The cover is by Mike Harrison, shows an American GI kneeling and pointing his gun downward with an Arvin soldier lying on the ground next to him in what looks like wreckage in the background. The cover copy says, Whose war is it anyway? There's certainly emotion going on here, but I'm not sure if the GI is angry at the Arvin soldier or is helping him or what. I know that it does tie into the story that's inside, as we do get a story from the POV of an Arvin soldier. So it does its job in that regard. I have, however, seen better covers in this series. The title of our issue is Huey. And the credits are as follows. Story, Don Lomax. Art, Wayne Van Zant. Letters, Phil Felix. Colors, John Calise. And edits, Tui, Daly, and DeFalco. We open in 1972 with Ed Marks and Dai Wee at the same place we left them in issue 81, talking about their experiences and recollections of the Tet Offensive in 1968. Ed had already gone home by this time. Um, he was a journalism student at Columbia, if you guys don't remember. He remembers watching reports about it at home and how Walter Cronkite's reporting on it was wholly negative and that Cronkite called the war unwinnable at that point. This, as the editor in notes, was what led LBJ to say, if we've lost Walter, we're finished. Sometime later, Johnson would actually announce that he was not going to seek nor accept the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 1968. The speculation was he did that to save face as he was more or less being forced out of running for re-election as it is. The winner of that election, by the way, in 1968 would be Richard Nixon. Ed and Dai then help set up some armaments to catch Charlie on the highway and our narration box reads, The parallels between the 1968 Tet Offensive and the enemy's 1972 Eastertide offensive are beginning to become all too apparent. Huey is in jeopardy of being 
overrun by North Vietnamese forces, but Ed Marks has known South Vietnamese Ranger Captain Liu and American Special Forces Sergeant Lester Bulldog Briscoe long enough to know it will be over their dead bodies. They begin working, and Dai Wee tells Ed Marks how he experienced the Battle of Hue in 1968. He begins by saying that Arvin kept trying to take a citadel held by the NVA and were repeatedly beaten back. It wasn't until the Arvin enlisted the help of the Marines that they were able to take it. Daiwi's story is interrupted by a private telling him that their colonel needs to see him, and Ed comments that he's pretty sure that he had left a few details out of his story. Bulldog says that there is definitely more to that story and tells Ed what he knows about how the story went down. We flash back to February 12th of 1968. Daiwi at that time is a lieutenant in the Arvin and is put in charge of a squad of Marines that Bulldog describes as a, quote, ragtag squad of cooks, motor pool mechanics, and clerks. The mission is to have them ready to go ASAP, and one of them, Booney, is completely against the idea of taking any orders from Marvin Arvin. He's dressed down by his sergeant and takes Daiwi's orders reluctantly. The mission is to cross the river into way and land in the city in a full frontal assault. The primary objective is to relieve the Arvin headquarters, which had been on its own since the beginning of the enemy offensive. They're able to overpower resistance and head into the city. Daiwi does have the advantage of being native to Hue and uses this to his advantage as after they land in the city, he is able to communicate with locals who tell him that they are heading right for an ambush. Booney doesn't believe it, and he thinks the locals are lying to them, although he's shouted down by a superior officer, an officer whom Daiwi pulls aside to explain that they do not have much combat training, especially urban combat training. The sergeant says that street fighting is something that they're not all not used to, and he never thought he'd want to be back in the jungle. Daiwi says he trusts these civilians. They head toward the Arvin HQ only to find that the soldiers at the gates will not let them in, saying it would invite an enemy attack. The Marines train their guns on the guards and are allowed in. The first night is quiet, but after that, the fighting intensifies as the Arvin and Marines attempt to take the Citadel. We see several assaults on many sides. Airstrikes, tanks, guns, mortars, and so many are taken out or injured that Daiwi is given the option of returning to his Arvin unit instead of staying with the Marines and leading them, but he decides to stay with the Americans. They begin to go house to house in Hue as they do. They get hit by enemy mortar fire. One of the soldiers, Pop, appears to have been killed, and two others, Cookie and Booney, are trapped behind a wrecked APC. Daiwi helps provide whatever cover fire he can, and Cookie and Booney help Pop, who actually was badly injured, but still alive, get to safety. Moments later, an Arvin tank arrives, but mistakes them for the enemy and begins to fire on them. Daiwi yells for them to run for cover, and as they do... Booney is shot and lies injured in the street. Before the Arvin tank can mistakenly fire on him again, a VC tank shows up and fires on it, saving Booney's life. The Arvin tank commander is killed and the crew flees, so Daiwi takes the opportunity to climb into the Arvin tank, take it over, and drive over Booney so that it provides enough cover for the fallen soldier to be helped for safety. Daiwi then fires upon the VC tank and destroys it. Later, Booney is placed on a medevac helicopter where he is headed to the hospital. As he leaves, he turns to Daiwi, salutes him, and says, You're okay, Marvin, sir. Bulldog closes out our issue by saying, The battle for Hue and the Citadel continued. The battle for Hue lasted 26 bloody days. 
They stood toe-to-toe with the NBA and the VC, took everything Charlie could throw at them, and kicked his butt back into Cambodia where he came from. Yet the American press reported we were beaten. The enemy gave it everything they had and couldn't hold on to one square inch when it was over. Any other war, any other time, and it would have been considered a great victory, but not Vietnam. No, not Vietnam. Don Lomax continues to return to the Tet Offensive, and while I know that this is the third to last issue, I know it's not his last look at that part of the war. I think it's probably because there's more or less the height of the action, because when we originally read about it, we were still doing the month-to-month and real-time stories, and therefore we only got one issue's worth of coverage. This is month four of Tet-related stories. It continues on the point that he had been making in the previous issue about Arvin soldiers not being as incompetent as they were stereotyped to be. He is reinforcing that point here, but also making a larger point about perception and perspective. Ed Marks' comments at the beginning and Bulldog's comments at the end are both fairly accurate. If you look at the facts of the matter as far as the Tet Offensive is concerned, you have a military operation that was not very successful. The North did not gain a significant amount of territory as a result of Tet, and the war would wind up going on in what was more or less a stalemate for the better part of the next seven years until the North finally overran the South in 1975, and more on that in a future episode. But the victory that the North did achieve was in what both officially and unofficially has been referred to as the hearts and minds of the American people. Ed Marks is correct in saying that the coverage was a game changer of opinion and perceptions of the public and wound up bolstering the anti-war movement. Bulldog does have a similar take on it, although he sounds much more bitter about it than Ed. Like I've said before, I try not to inject personal opinions into this, especially since, well, I wasn't there. I wasn't even alive during that time. But what I think is the strength of the scene at the beginning and the end of the story is that Lomax is addressing the various perceptions of the war and allowing us to see different perspectives. He may be injecting his own opinion in here, but I think that he's also giving us just enough to let us form our own opinion on the matter. Plus, those opinions don't take away from the main action of the story, which is Dai Wee's. We have an urban assault yarn via a motley crew of soldiers, one of whom has a serious prejudice against Arvin forces. We've seen issues of prejudice in this comic before, mostly between black and white soldiers on the American side. This time around, we have a black soldier, Booney, questioning the qualifications of a Vietnamese soldier. So it's another layer of characterization and a layer that further complicates the situation. Yes, Booney gets dressed down by a superior officer a couple of times, but... Lomax keeps his resentment up front throughout the mission. He even yells at Dai Wee and more or less blames him for what he perceives as his friend's death before finally falling himself and only comes around when he's saved. Which, yes, is a very typical type of story. The bigot doesn't learn his lesson until someone puts their life on the line for him, someone of color. But it works, especially since the action is literally all over the place and there is mistrust and miscommunication among all of the parties involved. The landing at Hawaii is illustrated in a similar manner to like a D-Day type invasion, which with these massive troop characters doing a landing on the shoreline, except that this offensive is not as nearly as organized, and we have instances like the Arvin guards not allowing the Marines into the compound and the friendly fire courtesy of the tank. It is almost a microcosm of the war itself, which is a complicated mess, especially by 1968, and it, it is still that way even looking back at it 50 plus years later. 
Lomax gives Wayne Van Zant the opportunity to take the issue off from jungle warfare by giving us an urban scenario that's not unlike the finale of Full Metal Jacket. Van Zant's art is as strong in this setting as it is in the jungle, and he continues to give us what is for the time an almost old-school war comic that separates itself so well from the overhyped, over-stylized 90s stuff at this time, and it makes the book hold up so much more than a lot of these those others. Unfortunately, I can see why that would have probably contributed to its cancellation. Granted, I am pretty sure that the Vietnam War narrative had run its course by 1993, as the war was not in the pop culture or public consciousness as much, and comic audience weren't interested in realistic takes on war so much as they were up for ultra-violent, overly-muscled mutants or cyborgs. Overall, this is a strong issue of the series, and the series continues to be outstanding even in its waning days. So we do have letters and ads this month. We have J.P. Maimon, or Maimon, Maimonet, from Quebec. I want to tell you that you're doing a fantastic job. I'm not really into comics because most of them are fiction, but the NAM is great. I plan to get all the issues except for number 41, and you know why. I'm really into Vietnam because I want to understand what happened. I have this friend who, who's a Vietnam vet, and I'm very fortunate to have met him. We talk sometimes when he's in the mood, and I can understand better. He was a snake eater. Here's my question. What's a snake eater? He only tells me it's someone who to do the dirty jobs. I've recently heard that he will be receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. Most of the time he was fighting VC, but he also fought the NVA. He told me that he disobeyed orders sometimes because he knew that those orders were going to kill innocent kids. He even told me that one day on a mission, he found several POWs through sheer luck. He carried one wounded man in his back several miles while running away from the VC. Thank God that there are still men like that. He still has nightmares and I'm praying for him and all the other vets to get better. He seriously believes that when he's going to die, he'll go right to hell. I always say he won't because he's already been there. I work in a hospital and know four doctors who have been to Vietnam, three in Saigon and one in Hue. One of them was a medic in the ARUN, and another another told me that during Tet in Hue, the VC forced him to write propaganda on a wall with bullets cracking over his head. I visited the wall last summer and it was touching. I said hello to the guys on behalf of my friend and told them that they are not forgotten. To finish, I again want to thank you before this because this comic fulfills my need to understand. I really hope Pig is okay because he's not a man afraid to put himself in jeopardy to save his friends. And also, I love the M60. Thanks a lot and keep up the good work. The Nam brought, Doug, uh, Tim Tui says, The Nam brought out a lot of things in people that they just as soon forget. If your friend will only tell you that he did the dirty jobs, then maybe that's better if we leave it to his discretion. I have a feeling back when he was, um, nothing, no, no offense to Tim Tui, who I don't even know, but, um, I have a feeling that back when Doug Murray was doing letter comms, he actually would have answered the question and explained if he could, what a snake eater was. David Falk of Pensacola, Florida is asking for, um, he bought a back issue of the NAM. He was hooked. Um, he doesn't have a subscription yet, but he will. And, uh, you know, he, he really likes how the comic is going. Uh, Tui answers that we'd like you to have you subscribe, but issue four is our last. It wouldn't be a good idea to send that check. Matt Parrish of Vesalia, California says he finished the NAM 80. He was scanning through the letters page when he noticed the NAM was going to end with issue 84. He was upset. He says he's been collecting it and he, he's been getting, he's got all the back issues. He says, I served four years in the Army as 11 Bravo 
and everywhere the 101st sent me from Honduras to the Gulf, I carried the nom with me. I was passed from enlisted to NCO to officer and was enjoyed by all. I guess there's nothing that can be done. I guess all good things come to an end. Thank you for entertaining and educating us in many ways. And uh, Tim Tui offers our thanks. He says, we've always been glad when this book was enjoyed by our uniformed readers. So welcome to the ranks. Finally, Andrew Goletz of Brookhaven, Pennsylvania says, I have been a steady comic reader for the past 10 of my 19 years. I have been with the NOM from the beginning. When issue 79 came out, I was pleased to hear that the bigwigs at Marvel were sticking to their plan of making the NOM a 96-issue finite series and maybe going to 100 just to give the title a going-away bash that the book deserves. Then yesterday I read that you decided to kill the book with issue 84. Again, in issue 79, you tell readers some of the upcoming stories. Another Punisher three-parter, 84 through 86, and a story told from the point of view of an NVA soldier. One month later, you print some in-memoriam block, trying to make it look like ending the book is some noble gesture. It is just the opposite. I have no statistics to tell me what the average age of the non-reader is, but I would guess that it's much higher than Marvel's other books. Was the nom doomed from the start? It got off to a hot start, but as the years went by, the fan, typical fan turned away from the book. The true supporters stayed with it, even through the bad times, even though there were, they were few and far between. Currently, you have one of the best writer-artist teams in comics in Don Lomax and Wayne Van Zant. The last half dozen issues have been the best since the first Ed Marks storyline, and you're going to cut it off in its prime. I suppose the nom must be sacrificed for a new gimmick title. I would have hoped that with Marvel's dominant stature in the industry that you'd be able to stick with one quality book that doesn't sell as well as the big X titles. In the final part of your In Memoriam, you say, Remember the war and always remember the dead. Well, a fine tribute this is, canceling the book only 12 issues before it reached an ending that would have made any vet proud. You always sign off with the passage Semper Fi. Always faithful? You guys certainly aren't faithful to the book. <sighs> the only just decision would be to continue the nom until at least issue 96. Otherwise, you're abandoning the true fans the same way the government abandoned the Vietnam vets 20 years ago. <laughs> this is a 19-year-old in 1993. Jeez, man. Thank you for your time, and I hope that you reverse this dreadful decision. I'm going to interject here. As much as I admire Andrew Goletz's passion, I don't think the Constitution of the United States qualifies Marvel canceling the nom due to poor sales as treason against the United States. But, you know, there we go. Anyway, here's Tim Tui's response. Well, Andrew, you wrote such a heartfelt letter, I felt bad about trimming it because I really wanted to include it. So this thing was longer. This is a long letter. This takes almost... If... um, it, It's... It takes up almost pretty much an entire column. It's split over two columns, but it, it, if if put in, it's an entire column of the letter column. So, well, Andrew, you know, I'm sorry I cut it. Uh, he says canceling the nom was by no means an easy decision to make. Don and I did not make it. That choice was made by higher authorities. In the time it took between 70 issue 79 and 80, the cancellation was announced. The stories that I wrote are about are still being done. The Punisher three-parter will now be a bookshelf format special called Final Invasion, which if you listen to last episode, I covered in my uh, my final Punisher in the 90s episode. The NBA point of view story will be the last issue of the book. By the way, that will be issue 84. As far as my statement, remember the war and remember the dead, that was said in hope that by remembering these things, we should avoid such a disastrous conflict again. Semper Fi. Whether it be until 100 or issue 84, 
We always remain faithful to the book. Let's look at the ads this month. Oh God, the Super Mario Brothers movie starring Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, and Dennis Hopper. Next ad. Um, we have an ad for jeez, the Skybox Marvel Universe Series Four trading cards. Man, somebody's got these. Looks like Ron Lim art on at least one of them. Trading cards. I, I can't remember when the bottom fell out of the trading card mark. I read a really, really good book um, a number of years ago called Mint Condition that was about the baseball card, the history of the baseball card market. Uh, and it it peaked, funny enough, it peaked right around the time of the, uh, started to peak right around the time of the comics boom. Um, I remember seeing, I think I've mentioned this before, I remember seeing an, an, an episode of 2020, a segment about baseball cards back in, I think, 1986. And it was about how, like, the business was booming and, and baseball card shops and things like that were opening up. And I know that by the mid-90s, uh, I think by the time the bottom fell out of the comics market, the baseball card market and the trading card market followed suit. Comics recovered to a certain extent. I know it's diversified in that there are a number of publishers who publish graphic novels and things like that in non-direct market, like not direct, not not through comic shops, but through you know a lot of them. There's a lot of sales made through things like Barnes and Noble, baseball cards and things. I know have gone to a more specialty type of thing. Um, there have been other trading card related things like trading card games and stuff, but I can't imagine it's as huge as it was. I think it, I think it still hasn't fully recovered. So Mint Condition was a book. There was also one called Cardboard Heroes that I, I've never read, but may check out at some point. There's an East Coast Comics ad, and then we have Bullpen Bulletins. Danny Fingeroth is taking over the Stan Soapbox for this month. With Danny's deep thoughts, he decided to write a really long essay on Spider-Man, and then um, as he was doing it, he put himself to sleep. So he's going to go with a top 10 list a la David Letterman. So, here are the top 10 things Carnage doesn't want you to know about him. Number 10, Cries at Weddings. Number 9, Loves Soap Operas. Number 8, Bakes a Dynamite Cheesecake. Number 7, Knows the Names of All Menudo Members. Number 6, Can't Water Ski. Number 5, Hates the Color Red. Number 4, Doesn't Floss. Number 3, Still Has His Old Report Cards. Number two, liked Rocky V the best. And the number one thing Carnage doesn't want you to know about him, can't spell symbiote. See in the funny papers, Daniel Fingeroth. Ha, ha, ha. In the Bull 10 Bulletins, um, they're talking about Spider-Man. So they, well, they had like the Spider-Man Summit, which DC did some similar things with Superman and Batman around this time. That's where the ideas for Nightfall and the Death of, and Return of Superman came out. And that's pretty much, um, it says, after the sensational resolution of the current Maximum Carnage storyline, the main thread to be untangled is the mystery regarding Peter Parker's parents, because they did return around this time. Are they clones? Are they mutants? Are they really his parents? And the resolution of that will be Amazing Spider-Man number 390. He says that Danny plans on spewing even more venom as the psychopathic symbiote gets into a trio of new limited series in 93. And I believe we're about a year away from the Clone Saga, if I remember correctly. I never bought the Clone Saga. Actually, I did not buy a lot of Spider-Man back in the 90s. I have a few. I have those uh, 30th anniversary issues, the one with the hologram covers. And I, Well, I had them. I don't have them anymore. And I had a few issues here and there, but for the most part, was not a Spider-Man person back then. Let's go with the... Uh, 
bottom line or grid thing this whole the marvel production thing where you have to flip things around borderline blather i guess whatever all right here we go joe kaufman paul betcon george oh so basically it's not a borderline blather it is a list of all the people in the marvel production office it's a little bit of credits to them we have a two-page spread ad for Fleer 93 uh, Ultra Baseball cards. I'm trying to remember what the Tops 93 set looked like. And I honestly think that by this time, I was not buying baseball cards. I want to say my last full set of Tops baseball cards, or the last set that, the last time I actively went out and bought tops cards was 91 and then after that i may have bought a couple of here and a couple of them here and there but for the most part i stopped buying baseball cards Ooh, a, ooh, a two-page spread entertainment this month ad and here we go people the greatest event of the 1990s is here and eventually it did finish and that is deathmate yes deathmate is here Featuring art by Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and more, Deathmate is the most ambitious intercompany crossover series ever. Highlighted by glossy paper and stunning foil covers, Deathmate is a must-have and has the highest possible recommendation. So you can get Deathmate Zero, which is the prologue for two fifty, and then Black, Blue, Red. <laughs> If red is ever put out, am I right, people? Oh yeah, um, and yellow. You can get the set for fourteen ninety five. You can get the mega set. The mega set is ten copies of each Deathmate issue, and includes a free limited edition premium Deathmate Zero for one hundred forty nine dollars and fifty cents. So hot, it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. I have a feeling people bought this. Someone somewhere is still holding on to these. Like, like next to their Phantom Menace action figures or something. Like, somebody somewhere still has these. I have all... I have Deathmate. I have um, one of each edition. So I have the prologue, all four of the colored ones in the epilogue. And then uh, years ago, and I'm working my way through them over my blog, The Uncollecting, I got a box of com- a ton of comics somebody's like two or three boxes of comics and in one of the boxes was just all these 90s comics a bunch of independent comics and there was a copy of Deathmate the Deathmate prologue and Deathmate Black which I tossed because I already have them so uh, so yeah th- those things are just like circulating like currency at this point you can get a Deathmate t-shirt for 16.95 and then Wizard 9023 which has a Deathmate cover and articles for 350. Uh, within four months, Wizard would be making fun of Deathmate or at least Rob Liefeld because uh, Deathmate Red still hadn't come out. And I keep promising myself, or I keep promising Mike and Shag that I'm going to cover Deathmate on on my other show. And it's, I think I've been promising that for years, so I'm kind of like Rob Liefeld in that regard. Anyway, if you oh, if you postmark or fax your order by July 10th, you get a free limited edition Deathmate poster. Let's see, we've got... Razorling, Clive Barker and Marvel introduce the new Twisted Superhero feature prismatic foil covers and that is hot these new image titles are hot brigade number zero cyber force number zero dooms four number one this was the one that was supposed to be like a movie or something i always see like uh, going through these old image things they keep advertising it savage dragon two number one union number one 
and Wildcats Trilogy number one. Batman's working his way through Nightfall. We've got Aliens Predator 2, which is an all-new violent series written by Chris Claremont. I believe that was the deadliest of the species, one if I'm not mistaken. Oh, here we go with the Marvel 93 swimsuit special. It's the hottest Marvel babes by the hottest artists. I owned this. I'm going to own up to that, that I did own it. Quasar 50 had a foil cover, Gene. I hope you have that, and I hope you preserved it. I hope you have it slabbed. Superman is in the reign of the Superman storyline. Sabretooth is getting his own miniseries. And then we have a free Magneto number zero. In celebration of the X-Men's 30th anniversary, Marvel is producing a limited edition Magneto Zero, featuring three great stories, pinups, and a foil embossed cover. Not available at any price from Marvel. Magneto Zero is a free with each set that you buy of Cable 5, X-Factor 94, X-Force 26, X-Men 24, and Wolverine 73. You get the set, the 5-issue plus Magneto number 0 for $5.95. That's a discount over the price of $7.50. And then um, they are advertising the X-Men 30th, so the Fatal Attractions crossover of X-Men Uncanny 304 and X-Force 25. They're an absolute can't miss. What else we got? Ultraverse. Ultraverse is showing up. Actually, Ultraverse is premiering. We've got Freaks, Mantra, Strangers, Hardcase, Prime, and the Ultra set, which is all five number one issues for $7.50. Lots going on. Everything's about to come crashing down, guys. Deathmate didn't help. We got a generic subscription ad on the inside back cover. We have... The Zit Fighters from Outer Space. Um, I think it's the same one. You can get an uh, X-Men collector's comic. Now on the back, we have um, an ad. And I want to preface this. It is for Brock's Rocks Candy. And it is introducing us to Rocky D Dinosaur Extraordinaire. Um, and it, it seems odd to make a dedication for this last ad in this segment. But uh, I have a reason for it. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the people who... I've followed for years um, is the is a dearly departed uh, friend of, of true fellow true true freaks member and friend of all of us and Sean Engel. Sean's been gone for a couple of years now, and um, in the early days of his his show, his outstanding show, which I believe is still in the network, if you would like to go back and listen to it, called Just One of the Guys. It covered the uh, Green Lantern comics series that started in 1990, Green Lantern number one, and ended in uh, the 2000s. Um, so we, which like was 181 or 188 or something right before Jeff Johns took over the, the, the series and, and rebooted it. So you have the Hal Jordan, the return of Hal Jordan in the post-crisis, but mostly it's called just one of the guys because he's covering Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And, during this time, around this time, this Rocky D. Dinosaur Extraordinaire comic uh, ad would appear. And it was just one of those ads that was, like, absolutely ridiculous. And um, I remember at one point, uh, my first actual quote-unquote appearance on the show was my kid had this transforming dinosaur truck series. And I can't remember what they were called, but Tonka put them out. Uh, like dino switch or something switch and go dinos switch and go dinos and there was a dinosaur it was a black um 
the car was actually black. The black car that would transform into like a T-Rex or something. I don't remember what dinosaur it was. It was called MC Roar. And these things said things like you pressed a button and the, and the dinosaur would roar and then it would say things like, let's go, you know, kind of that stuff. But this one like would rap. And, and at one point he said, oh, snap. So I recorded myself up to the mic with this thing playing it for Sean. And just Sean played it in his air as he was listening to it the first time. And it actually was, he was laughing pretty hard. And um, so when I saw this ad, I thought of him, um, his show music and the format and stuff i i cribbed a little from that he was an amazing podcaster he was a great guy um i think we all still miss him so uh, i'm gonna dedicate my look at this ad to him and to say thank you for for what you know what he gave all of us in the short time that i didn't know him so the internet gods have blessed us with a commercial there was a commercial for this that aired on television so I had to play it and I only wish that Sean were listening to this and that, or that I had found this and said this to him prior back when he was doing just one of the guys, because I really hope he would have played it on his show. So without further ado, here is the commercial for Brock's rocks starring Rocky D dinosaur extraordinaire. Look at the Wrong, Brontosaurus Breath. I'm not just a dinosaur. I'm Rocky D, dinosaur extraordinaire. Wow, you eat rocks? Well, certainly not those hard things you find on the ground, but these totally cool, new, soft and chewy Brock's Rocks candies. Look like rocks, feel like rocks. Hey, they don't taste like rocks. They're great. Yup, five dynamite fruit flavors. Excellent. You can get your rock from Brock's. Brock's Rocks. Now, we're rocking with Brock's Rocks. And Poochie died on the way to his home planet. We miss you, Sean. Thank you. Um, this will do it for issue 82. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back with historical context for October, December of 1973. Stick around. My name is Grundy. Born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. what's it my pre- okay. It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, so I am looking at October, November, and December of 1973. My usual sources are Wikipedia and The History Place. On October 10th, 1973, political scandals result in the resignation of Vice President Spiro Agnew. He is replaced by Congressman Gerald Ford. 
Spiragna resigned as vice president of the United States and in federal court in Baltimore soon after pled guilty to no contest of charges of income tax evasion on $29,500 he received in 1967 while he was governor of Maryland, and he is also fined $10,000 and put on three years probation. This is actually much lighter than what he was involved in, and there is a great podcast out there. It was a limited series called Bagman, B-A-G-M-A-N. It was hosted by Rachel Maddow from MSNBC. Agnew was involved in, it's, it's almost quaint considering this came in the middle of Watergate and it's really not related to Watergate. It's like an old school, old timey political bribery scandal. And how it's just bribes and favors and under the table things and stuff. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating portrait of not only um, Agnew, the scandal, but the but the investigators, the lawyers who ended up kind of taking him down as a result. I would recommend you go go listen to it. October 20th is what was known as the Saturday Night Massacre. The United States President Richard Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to dismiss Watergate Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. Richard refused and resigned, along with Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus. Solicitor General Robert Bork, third in line of the Department of Justice, then fired Cox. The event raised calls for Nixon's impeachment. On October 21st, the Oakland Athletics defeated the New York Mets 5-2 to win the World Series four games to three. Um... That was a crazy season. There's at least one book out about it. Uh, the Mets had gone from nearly last place at the All-Star break all the way to winning the National League pennant. The NLCS that year was highlighted by a pretty badd brawl and a fist fight between Buddy Harrelson and Pete Rose. I know that has nothing to do with Vietnam, but I'm a Mets fan, so there you go. On November 1st, 1973, back to the Watergate scandal, Robert Bork, who was the acting attorney general at this time, appoints Leon Jaworski as the new Watergate special prosecutor. I should note that Bork was a Supreme Court justice nominee under either Reagan or H.W. Bush, and it was scuttled by like past his past and stuff, and, and the, the phrase to get Borked was, hey, a uh, phrase used in the press for the way um, a uh, person's um, past dealings or whatever can completely hijack or sabotage their uh, nomination to a Supreme Court uh, justiceship. So, November 7th, Congress passed the War Powers Resolution. This required the president to obtain the support of Congress within 90 days of sending American troops abroad. This was done after Nito, Nixon vetoed the resolution and Congress had enough votes to override that veto. On November 17th, Nixon gave his famous I am not a crook address in Orlando, and I believe this was at the Disney's Contemporary Resort Hotel on the grounds of Walt Disney World. On November 21st, Nixon's attorney, J. Fred Buzhart, revealed the existence of an 18-and-a-half-minute gap in one of the White House tapes related to Watergate. On December 3rd, we now actually have some, a little bit more war news here. Viet Cong destroyed 18 million gallons of fuel stored near Saigon. Gerald Ford is sworn in as the vice president on December 6th. And really, there isn't a lot of Vietnam War-related information during this period. Uh, there, If you look at it, just 1973 in general, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict heats up once again. 
this includes the Yom Kippur war and t- terrorist activity by the PLO. We're headed toward uh, energy crises. The, the, the shift in foreign policy really is moving toward the Middle East more than, um, than, say, Southeast Asia or East Asia. We will see this in a big way in the late, later part of the decade with the, with the Iranian hostage crisis. Um, and of course, don't forget, there was a ceasefire essentially going on in Vietnam at this point. The United States had pulled out earlier in the year, so there isn't a ton of actual wartime or war strategy or, or just activity going on. That will, of course, change as we get closer to 1975. And I'll get to that in a couple of issue, episodes, but next episode, I'm actually going to go back to the Punisher for one last Punisher look. Now, this is not anything that came out concurrent with the NAM. I've already covered all of those, but Garth Ennis has had a uh, landmark, really. It's just kind of like one of the one of the most important or, or most critically lauded runs on The Punisher over the last like decade and a half or so. And over the course of his look at The Punisher, he has, or his run of The Punisher, he has gone back to the Vietnam stories at least three times. And I'm going to cover three of those books. I'm going to cover the story Born, Valley Forge, Valley Forge, and The Platoon. That'll be next episode. In two episodes, I'm going to come back with the nom number 83, which is the second to last story of the entire book. And I'm going to finish up wartime historical context by looking at 1974 and 1975. Until then, you can follow me at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. And if you're interested in getting feedback to me for episode 99, please get it to me by August 15th, 2019. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and as always, take care. The in the leaves on the trees and the church of the breeze is a pleasing sense of happiness for You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com this podcast is a proud part of the two true freaks internet radio network which is a division of the Demanzacor of milan italy please support this podcast and all the other two true freaks podcasts by using the amazon.com link at two truefreaks.com anytime you shop it costs you no extra money but really helps us all out thank you for listening and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of the nom since you've been around